0: This is Nashville. I'm Nina Cardona sitting in for your host, Khalil Ekulona. For almost a decade now, the Metro Arts Commission has championed diversity and inclusion in the city's art scene. There are grants for artists from communities that often struggle for funding and attention. But last year, employees of the Arts Department started to speak publicly about how the agency was failing to live up to its own standards around equity. The accounts paint a picture of tokenism and unfounded disciplinary measures. To put it more plainly, they describe racist discrimination at Metro Arts. After more than a year of reckoning and a new executive director, what is the path forward for Metro Arts? But first, A few months ago, Tennessee's abortion law changed dramatically. Once the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision cleared the way, a trigger law went into effect that bans nearly all abortions in the state. There is no exception to save the life of someone who is pregnant. Instead, a physician who performs an abortion can defend the decision in court after being charged with a Class C felony. This week, the Nashville Banner has the story of what happened when doctors had to stop caring for a pregnant patient and wait for lawyers to weigh the legal risks of saving her life. Steve Cavendish reported the story. Steve, thanks for joining us today.
1: Thanks. Great to be here.
0: The woman at the heart of this story chose not to make her real name public, so we're calling her Sarah. How did you find out about her?
1: Uh, through social media, uh, I had seen uh, some kind of details of a of a story. This is this happened roughly uh, a week or two after the state's abortion trigger ban had gone into place, and so I started reaching out through direct messages and, and other kind of ways to, to try to talk to this woman, and after a few months, uh, she agreed to talk to me.
0: What went wrong with Sarah's pregnancy?
1: So she had an ectopic pregnancy, uh, which was a tremendous surprise to her because that summer, she, this last summer, she had had uh, an IUD, which is a form of birth control, uh, put in.
0: Oh wow, so she didn't even anticipate being pregnant.
1: No, and she she woke up on a on a Tuesday and was feeling bad and then said, "Okay, well maybe I'll I'll see how I'm doing tomorrow." And then called a friend of hers who was a nurse practitioner and the the next day and said said, "You know, I've got sort of these symptoms." And she said, "Well, you better get that checked out. It could be an appendix." And so the next day, she's a teacher and and I think this kind of reflects on most teachers. She went ahead and did her <laughs> did did her class that day, and and, and uh, this was on a Thursday, and she and she uh, had taken herself to Vanderbilt to the emergency room, and at the emergency room, you know, at, they they can be kind of chaos anyway. Yeah, particularly if you know Vanderbilt is a is a level one trauma center. There's a lot of bad cases that come through there. Sometimes you know if if it's not <laughs> if it's not the most serious thing in the world. You have to fight for attention. And so she got, she got triaged. And then uh, after a couple of hours, they started to figure out, wait a minute, could she be pregnant? Which was a complete surprise to her. And they performed a test, found out she was pregnant. And at that point, everything sort of kind of ground to a halt because this was, this was uh, about seven days after the state's. Ban had been in place. It was one of the first cases they'd had to deal with, and I think all of Nashville's hospitals had been talking about it, both through their counsel and and to each other about okay, if this goes into place, as they knew it would have after do- after the Dobbs decision in June, what what happens to us? How do we act within this?
0: And, and let's let's just make sure that everybody's on the same page. If listeners. Aren't incredibly familiar with the term, but an ectopic pregnancy—that's not viable.
1: It is not a viable pregnancy,
0: and it is generally a danger to the pregnant person.
1: It's a fertilized egg, but it happens outside of the uh, outside of the uterus. And typically, it, it implants as it did with Sarah in the fallopian tube, and so what happens is is it continues to grow. It's pregnancy tissue, and as it gets bigger and bigger, kind of outside of the uterus, uh, it begins to sort of wreak havoc. And this is what happened with Sarah.
0: So like you said, this is one of the first cases of doctors having to sort out what they can and can't do for this patient who is at risk because of a non-viable pregnancy. So what did they do?
1: So she was, uh, and I'm talking to her a couple of months later, and she was she was very candid. Uh, but she was, I think she also had a little bit of perspective with it. And so she was, she was actually quite funny in our interview. And she said, you know, as I'm sitting there, a doctor came in and had said something that they thought would be comforting to me, but which is not the the, the most comforting words in the world. Which are, "Don't worry, we've got legal involved." No. <laughs> and so, the the hospital ended up inserting about twenty paragraphs into her medical charts, which I had a chance to examine, and the in what is a what is called an affirmative defense strategy. Written into the state's uh, abortion law, which which bans everything, is is some language that says it's an affirmative defense to this law to to treat uh, to treat a woman in in a in a in a, in a uh, who may need life saving care.
0: So basically, you're saying that preparation for potentially. Having to talk to a judge about what they did is just written all through her medical chart.
1: Right. And, 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 you know, this is the, this is the, this is the hospital and the doctors covering themselves with legalese in order to be able to treat what is a fairly standard thing. And and, an OBGYN that I talked to in the story, was like, look, this is part of, this is part of our care. This is, this is part of what I have to do uh, as a doctor is to be able to treat women who who come into these conditions it, it, this is not a rare sort of thing in in Tennessee there were uh, and I've got this in the story there there were 1 to 2% of all pregnancies are going to end up being ectopic so you're talking somewhere between 750 and 1500 women every year or you know three a day who are experiencing this problem and so what happens when 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 this uh, eventuality comes into play.
0: So as you talk to other doctors, had they heard about this case?
1: Uh, yeah. And, and and I think this is uh, this ended up being one of the first. I can't say it was the first case uh, because I the hospitals don't will not talk about right. pa- patient care. But and, It was definitely
0: it was, very early. It was
1: it was very, it was within the first week of the of the trigger ban going in.
0: So they'd heard about it, and I mean, they're talking about this and watching. Yeah, I mean,
1: and and doctors talk, uh, and and hospitals talk. I mean, I think one of the things that 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 was really interesting to me was that the the legal officers at different hospitals, uh, and there's there's you know, HCA has a number of hospitals here. Uh, Ascension has a, has a, a bunch of other hospitals. I mean, that's that's most of them. But I, all of those CEOs and legal officers and, and chief medical officers, I think, are talking to to each other around big issues like this because what whatever the political ramifications of it are, they have to treat patients and they have to treat these these women who are, who are coming into them.
0: So you mentioned the affirmative defense aspect to this and and what that means. How does that line up with other Tennessee
1: laws? I mean it, this is this is an outlier. I mean affirmative de, affirmative defense is in and I, and I'm and I'm not an expert in all of Tennessee you know, all the Tennessee code annotated but uh, it, it this is a this is a rare sort of thing and this is what several states have, have put in in the in 2019 is when Tennessee passed this as, uh, they were following the 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 lead of several other states who had put these these provisions in that said, okay, if Roe versus Wade is overturned, our state uh, immediately either bans abortion or bans it at down to 15 weeks or bans it down to six weeks or uh, there's a, there's a number of different kind of pieces to it, uh, but but some of them have this affirmative defense language and I think it's fairly common. Um, this this was this was a kind of a common tactic within the legal movement to try to ban abortion was 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 to put this in because there are no other exceptions. There's no exceptions for rape, there's no exceptions for incest, and there's no exceptions for the life of the mother except this sort of piece of it. And this is what you know there's a little bit of kind of you know first year law school kind of going on here which is you know what does this question mean? Is it is it illegal that I'm doing this if I have a defense to it? And and what lawyers say is that well it's a class C felony. The act of it is it doesn't matter if there's a defense to it. There's it's still illegal technically for you to do this. So then you're at the discretion of the prosecutor. And and and, and are we going to have prosecutors you know, going after doctors? Right.
0: One of the legislators who supported this law is a doctor, Republican Representative Richard Briggs. But now he says he has misgivings about it. What do you make of that?
1: Uh, this this came from a, a ProPublica article uh, where and where he said, "Look, I, it, the the pro life lobby in Tennessee is very strong. Uh, the pro life lobby was was pushing very hard for this, and a lot of legislators. It's very important for them to to have a one hundred percent pro life uh, uh, pro life rating, and." there were there were political ramifications if they didn't. They might get they might get primaried. They might get voted out kind of kind of within uh, in like in a general election. And Briggs said that he and others had been just like rubber stamping this legislation through because they didn't think a that Roe would ever be overturned and B that that this law was ever going to come into place
0: with all of the strong political opinion thats just swirling around the whole issue. How did Sarah feel about letting you share her story? Uh,
1: she wanted to sit to share it she had to get to a place where she would share it um, but once she did she was incredibly generous with her time and most importantly she showed me all of her medical records uh, and and kind of let me go through and see that you know here's twenty graphs of 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 legal language in the middle of in, in the middle of her treatment uh, she uh, I think is and and she mentions this in the story she's flabbergasted by the, uh, the 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 doctors would have to be in a position of actually breaking the law in order to treat her and and she said something which I thought was really interesting which she said look I I have a lot of privilege she said you know I have lawyers in my in my family I have all kinds of support here and she said I'm in the middle of Nashville I have access to world-class care at a number of different hospitals. What, if, what if, what if I'm a woman without those, uh, w- without all of those benefits in a rural setting uh, in that doesn't have access to a great hospital who doesn't have access to a doctor who's willing to perform the care because it's the doctor's choice, you know, not to, to I mean, some, some doctors will not perform abortions. That's their right. Uh, and, but she said, you know, what happens if I, if I am in a situation where I didn't have all of this? Uh, she said, I'm, I feel very, very lucky. And, and I, she, told, she told me all of this because uh, I, I think she and others would like to have exceptions written into the law.
0: Well, thank you, Steve. Thank you. Steve Cavendish is the editor of the Nashville Banner. His report on Sarah's case is out now. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll look back at the reckoning at Metro Arts over discrimination in its own offices. Tweet us at This is Nashville. We'll be right back. cardona and this is nashville let's go back to june the city's public facilities arts and culture committee is meeting and artist simone boyd has waited for her turn to speak as a member of the public she says she's concerned about charges that have been filed against janine cristiano the metro arts grants coordinator simone is black and janine is asian-american After introducing herself, Simone describes what she calls a culture of retaliation and intimidation at Metro Arts, a culture of silencing dissent, and a culture of double standards for employees of color.
2: And this culture of intimidation and retaliation has been allowed to bloom under chair Jim Schmidt um, with coordination from Ian Myers. So what I'm asking is that this committee here if you would please write a letter asking for the resignation of Jim Smith and Ian Myers. well, uh, I, 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 for one, uh, appreciate the
3: opportunity for any, consi- any constituent, any citizen uh, of Nashville to be able to have a place, to have a voice and mm-hmm. to communicate it. And I'm glad that you've had that
0: opportunity here today. Mm-hmm. Um, this the second voice you uh, hear is Metro council, 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 council Member Nancy Van Rees, who is white. She is vice chair of the committee. She goes on to say basically that there's nothing the committee can do at the moment. After this exchange, another council member speaks up, Sharon Hurt who is black, asks Simone if she has more to say. You'll hear her voice in this next clip after Simone Boyd and Nancy Van Reese.
2: Thank you for that. Um, I would just note that Ian Myers brought the charges against Jenny Cristiano. He's also serving on the review panel for her hearing, which I think is a conflict of interest. And I would just say there's already been a fact-finding report. And so you you all have the power to send a signal for all of Nashville that you want equity In the the heat of 2020, a lot of things were said and done but
0: now it's time to see action. Well, yeah, I I, I appreciate it. I appreciate it, Um,
3: uh, but I I don't think that this committee is in a position to take any action at all until the complete evaluation is done. There are other things still pending. We may not take
1: action, but I still want to make sure that she is heard to completion. So if there's more that you want to say... I
2: would ask that you all... Make sure that people, dozens of people, have written comments, and they're not even viewable on the Metro Arts website. Okay, that's that's. There's no minutes available from those meetings, okay. and that is a pattern of silencing dissent. And I feel like in this moment I'm being silenced, which is unfair. Oh, I apologize if I've caused that. or that, That's and okay. Um, I'm used to yeah, it. I'm a lot of comments, so. Um, oh, I, that's um, fair.
0: It's a little difficult to hear at the end, but Simone Boyd says she's used to being silenced as a black woman. And Nancy Van Rees responds by saying that's not fair to her. Now, the grants coordinator in question, Janine Cristiano, was later terminated by the Metro Arts Commission. We asked her to join us on today's show, but she declined, citing ongoing legal matters. If you noticed, Simone Boyd said there was a pattern of silencing dissent. So we reached out to other Metro Arts employees who were targets for discrimination. Cecilia Celia La Tribble declined our interview request, explaining that the whole experience drained her. She says she went through the worst sustained racism she's ever experienced in her life. She added that her health and mental well-being, as well as her families, were all compromised because of her experience there. So today we'll be talking with people who saw what was going on. Wilna Julmas taylor is the assistant director of the Curb Center, and she co-directs a program with Metro Arts called Racial Equity in Arts Leadership, or REAL. Thanks for joining us today.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: Wilna, what is REAL, and how has Metro Arts been involved?
3: So REAL is an initiative to help arts organizations in Nashville to think about how equity is being applied. um, to help establish a sense of what it means when we're talking about equity and belonging and how to um, do the hard work um, together Um, because supremacy culture affects us all, right? Um, Those in majority groups and those in non-majority groups. And so we come together and we discuss and we try to um, give the the tools and techniques and the lived experiences that we know um, can hopefully help us build that beloved community that we're we're striving for here in Nashville.
0: We just heard a statement from Alushala. How did she work with Real?
3: She is one of the um, founding um, people from Metro Arts, from what I understand. Um, She and the previous assistant director at CURB, along with the director of CURB, um, the past director of CURB, established the the program, saw the need um, and had the um, vision and figured that they had the, the ability with the resources both agencies or organizations had to, um, to think about this work um, and to engage the, 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 the issues that they saw taking place in Nashville.
0: So we just heard how Alushala described her experience. She resigned from Metro Arts in 2019 after she was accused of breaking civil service rules. Former Metro Arts employee Laurel Fisher, who is white, vouched for Alushala and basically said that she got in trouble for not exactly following rules that were flexible for other employees. Mm -hmm. Laurel also declined our invitation to join the show today and said she is similarly simply exhausted. What was your reaction when Alushala left? I,
3: of course, am saddened that it's under the the, the circumstances, right? And I understand that exhaustion that she's talked about. Um, it's one thing to be doing the work and then also living it, right? Right. Um, and again, just the, the saddened that, that that is the outcome. Yeah.
0: Did you start asking questions about you know what happened? What what's going on here?
3: I did um, because you know stepping into the role as the co facilitator with with Janine, um, I had to get a sense of what what are we doing here because I was new to the role, and I knew that now there there was a shift happening with Janine stepping into it, um, and so we actually took uh, a sort of hiatus to assess. Um, both the program and then the relationship between the two organizations and um, just get a sense of the lay of the land and the environment, what was happening. Um, And it's, it it, it, it was not unfamiliar, right? The issues. Um, Some of it is just being human and some of it is not having tackled some of the things that um, came to surface and, um, I also took it as this is part of the work, right? Um, We have to acknowledge that this is, again, a thing that affects us all and we have to do the work. The thing that was distressing is, um, and I think this is one of the things that's caused some morale issues within the cohort um, this year, is that the agency that is um, pushing for the work to be done and to say that they're supporting this and behind this, was at the center of living it as well and not performing in the way that one would hope for those who are aware, you would say, and have had the skills or the training or the resources to um, combat this issue.
0: Now you mentioned Janine, and just you know, for our listeners, that's Janine Cristiano, the yes. person we heard Simone Boyd talking about in those clips, talking about Janine's mistreatment. Mm-hmm. What did you notice about Janine's experience?
3: So again, we were experiencing experiencing it in real time. Um, I think, again, this is from my perspective. I saw her ready to tackle the work and to embrace that this is what it looks like sometimes, right? It's easy to tell others how to sometimes, how to do this and how to recognize it. But then when you're in it, um, it's a whole other story. So I saw her saying, okay, this is now a chance to also put into practice some of the things that, you know, personally she works on and professionally she works on. And as we progress and things became... um, I don't know, more problematic, and it was not looking like it was going to go the way we we, we would hope, Um, she became exhausted, like Alushala. Um, She was overwhelmed, of course, and there were moments of just uh, distress, right? And and not having the the support um, and the acknowledgement and the guarantee that things would be handled in the way one would hope.
0: If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm Nina Cardona, sitting in for your host, Khalil Ekulona. We're talking this hour about discrimination in the offices of Metro Arts, and I'd like to welcome my next guest. Alan Fay is a local arts administrator and has worked for organizations that receive Metro Arts funding. Alan, thanks for being here, and welcome to This is Nashville.
4: Thanks for having me.
0: Tell me about the petition you started.
4: Um, so, uh, in the process of all of this, I, uh, um, uh, like, um, uh, I was working closely with Simone Boyd and, um, uh, in, in, like she was saying in that, uh, the clip we heard at the top, um, I basically felt that the leadership of Metro Arts, which at that time in, in, I think it was June, late June, that was... The commission chair Jim Schmidt, and uh, interim or acting uh, executive director um, Ian Myers, um, because they were both, uh, you know, responsible for what was happening in that sense. And so I so I started this petition that was calling for their, you know, for their removal, whether that was through Ian's through resi- resignation or uh, whatever that that needed to be, and. Um, and so I sent that out to lots of uh, folks in the arts community and uh, um, and uh, di- wasn't sure kind of how that would be received because I, you know, I recognize that calling for someone's resignation or removal is a big, you know, that's a lot. Um,
0: well, what were the signs that you were seeing that, that this is bad enough that that's necessary? Uh,
4: well, for me, one of them was that Janine was terminated. Uh, essentially, for being a whistleblower, um, and so um, you know, she uh, the I started the t- petition after she had been rece- um, been given a charge letter and put on administrative leave, and had a disciplinary hearing. And after that, I that was a, really the the key point because I set in on that hearing as a you know to show support for Janine and voice that um, in the room, and um, just seeing the one sidedness of that hearing, which included three other folks in the metro government and Ian Myers himself on her hearing panel. Um, and uh, <clears throat> sorry. Uh, so, so yeah, so then uh, just the fact that he was the one responsible for initiating that and eventually terminating her and that, you know, Chair Schmidt had been, you um, really didn't seem uh, interested in listening to the community,
1: mm-hmm.
4: whether it was through the public comment policy or just the lack of transparency in commission meetings, um, and the fact that legally the Metro Arts Commission is responsible for the executive director of Metro Arts.
0: So we, you put this petition out there. What was the response that you were getting from other artists and arts groups? I mean, is this something they'd been noticing as well?
4: Yes, yeah, so I got a lot of response um more from individual artists, which actually surprised me just because that's not I'm, I work with organizations on the most part so that um, I'm not as well connected with a lot of individual artists in the community but um, but I think that was uh, they saw had seen this problem and this this was not new. Um, and something that I said even before the very first article came out in the scene in September 2021, I had heard rumors about, a negative, toxic workplace environment. I didn't realize it was rooted in uh, discrimination or racial discrimination, and um, and I think that was what sort of kicked everything off for me personally. But um, uh, but yeah, I got a lot of response from them. Uh, I arts organizations. I there were a handful that voiced publicly voiced support. Most of them voiced privately to me or said, hey, I can't speak out on behalf of my organization, but I I support you.
0: So when you hand in this petition, what was the reaction from the Metro Arts Commission?
4: Um, it was included in the public comment packet for that meeting in June. Uh, and there was discussion or mention of all of the public comments that were included, said, make sure that we have read these and received these and listened to the community. And that was it. There was not even a literal verbal mention of, hey, there's a petition with over 180 signatures from members of community.
0: As someone who competes for Metro Arts Grants, who's held to certain standards by that agency, how did that feel?
4: Um, it it honestly, it felt like a, a personal betrayal of trust. Um, because as, as the primary, I mean, I'm the primary grant writer for some of my organizations and there's always been questions of equity, both in the uh, the written application and the um, the verbal panel that you participate in, um, and there should be the you know arts organizations receiving this fund should be that should be part of the conversation. Is what we're doing as an arts organization to be more equitable, um, both internally and externally. But then to see that this organization that the Metro Arts that was promoting that wasn't actually held to the same standards. And it felt like as a community, even though we were trying to hold them to that standard, it felt like we didn't have any power to do so.
0: So just to touch on the timeline here, just a moment. The problem of discrimination at Metro Arts was made public in the fall of 2021. This February, outside consultants were brought in. And in April, Caroline Vincent resigned her job as the director of Metro Arts. And in fact, in the last 11 months, half of the staff at Metro Arts have stepped down. Wilna, how has all of this turmoil affected the real program?
3: Like I mentioned earlier, the morale is um, definitely shaken. We haven't been able to establish closure um, with the program. There, We just have, I mean, major um, contributors have, you know, Janine being one of them, um, is no longer there. So having to figure out how to keep... Um, the work going um, because it, it is important work, and the organizations involved and the individuals who applied to be part of Real are invested. But it it, it was just this weird um, combination of things, right? That, like you said, that the, the accountability wasn't there from the organization that's talking about how to think about and 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 engage and practice accountability, and then the co-director is fired, right? So, um, we have part of what of the redesign that um, Janine and I um, put into place with this uh, new iteration of Real is there's a six months of workshop and learning, um, setting the the ground rules, um, learning the language of equity work and anti-racism and such, and then six months of practicum. So actually taking the work and going back to your organization and practicing it so that you get it into, you know, muscle memory, right? It's one thing to talk about. it; It's another thing to try to do it. Um, So that's, so we have not been able to, um, outside of reading the reports, assess and have a, a closing discussion about how those things
0: went. After the break, we're going to bring in the new Metro Arts Director, Daniel Singh. What questions do you have for him? I think
3: I just, I've had some conversations with Daniel and I think he is, um, um, or has expressed to me his interest in continuing real. Um, I I'm just curious on how he's inherited a lot, right? A lot of difficult things. I'm curious on how he is going to work on establishing the the trust, the and how's impl- how he's going to implement accountability, and how real is going to function in this new design.
0: And of course, real being a program that is all about exactly what has been the problem yeah, yeah. at Metro Arts that we have discovered in the last little while. Well, Will and Jewel Miss Taylor is the assistant director of the Curb Center. Alan Fay is an arts administrator who's been involved in many ways around Nashville. Thank you so much to both of you. Thank you for having us.
4: Thanks for having us.
0: We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk about next steps with the two people leading Metro Arts into its next chapter. Tweet us at this is Nashville. We'll be right back. Cardona, and this is Nashville. Before the break, we heard about the allegations of tokenism and discrimination at Metro Arts. Former employees say they were silenced or held to unfair standards because of their race. Many left or were fired. The agency's executive director resigned. So, where does that leave Metro Arts, and how can it move forward? My next gu- my next guests have the job of rebuilding the agency. Daniel Singh was named this year to be the new executive director of Metro Arts, and Mattia Powell is the new chair of the Metro Arts Commission, the community board with oversight of the agency. Thank you both for joining us today. Daniel, how much did you understand about the problems at Metro Arts when you applied for the job as director?
5: So I heard what was. Happening in the media, and I, you know, understand that it's usually one side of the story. And um, so, I also had done my research before I came, and and I felt like um, equity work takes practice, and it takes it's an iterative practice. You know, it's not something that happens in a straight line. So, um, the fact that there was work happening and that the agency had committed to equity in its mission statement were all good signs for me. And I understood that it'll be messy. You know, we're gonna go one step forward, two steps back, and so um, so I came in with my eyes open. Yeah.
0: Why did you want the job?
5: So, you know, Nashville has this amazing history of being the music city. It's the Athens of the South. Uh, the public arts program in Nashville is renowned nationally. I had a friend uh, in D.C. who would worked at Vanderbilt and spoke really highly about her time in Nashville and and the culture here. And I, all my life had lived in D.C. area, so I wanted to have a chance to experience Nashville and the arts thriving here. So I thought this would be a nice moment to try to make that happen.
0: And Mattia, you're not new to the commission. You were there as these problems came to a head and the allegations became public. What went wrong?
6: Well, I think it's one of those things where, you know, there's not one thing or one person. It's it's just, you know, I think we had some really good, ambitious goals around equity. And, you know, we've had um, the um, diversity and equity office of of metro government work with us. And I think one of the things that they were that was clear to them is that we really needed to have a unified vision for equity. Uh, and I'm not sure that we actually had that. Um, I think everybody really believed in equity, believed in the mission statement. But like the practical, the practical and operational uh, things that have to happen to make equity work, I'm not sure if we had all those things that we needed. So, you know, I think one of the things we have to do moving forward is making sure that we have a clear vision of where we want to go with our equity work um, that the commission and this is this is also a director from a recommendation from that particular report is that we have a clear vision that the commission and staff and all the community understands that vision. We're aligned around it. Uh, And then that we have some, like, really benchmarks on how we're going to get to that vision. And that's what really we're working on now is really to make sure that we're all on the same page with this vision and we know how we're going to get there.
0: I mean, you say you felt like there was vision there to begin with. And clearly for the greater arts community and the way that arts organizations are expected to operate, there was. Had there been specific thought about, well, how do we treat our own employees?
6: I think part again part of this vision is really figuring out how we're going to work together and really make sure that we are you know we are aligned on this vision. You know, I, I think that as as Daniel mentioned, equity work is definitely messy, and I think internal equity work is super important. Um, and you know, I, I we have to make sure that we have that everybody understands where we are, that we're all on the same page, that we have transparency, we have mechanisms for people um, to really be able to to live out this work. Um, and so you know I clearly we we had some challenges around that I'm not going to sugarcoat that we definitely had some challenges we have seen that we've had challenges for that, and we don't want to repeat those challenges. So we're definitely being way more intentional and in making sure we define this process moving forward, making sure the staff feel like they're supported in this process. I think that's super important. Um, making sure that the commission is aligned around where we're going and that they're ready to support the staff, making sure the community is aligned around it and they're all we're all on the same page. So, you know, we definitely, you know, made some mistakes, but we want to move forward.
0: So when you hire Daniel as the new executive director... What marching orders did the commission give him?
6: Well, we—I don't know about marching orders. Um, I think you know we were—we you know we were clear about where we were. Um, I think one of the things that you know we uh, that that we really loved about Daniel was that he had some experience in this work around equity. Um, he, he was also an artist, so he understood it from an artist perspective as well. Um, and, you know, we, you know, we wanted somebody that had some, some experience operationalizing it. And I think he brings that, um, but also he brings the art perspective as well as an artist. Um, and, and, you know, I think we, you know, we gave him the artist of like, we're here to support you. Uh, we want to make sure you're supported in this work. Um, so it wasn't necessarily orders. I wouldn't want to say that we gave him marching okay. orders. Okay, that's fine. Uh, I would say that, you know, we wanted, we, we, we hired him. We wanted to support him in this work. We were, you know, clear about where we were uh, and the challenges that we faced. Uh, and we're trying to make sure that he's supported as we work through all of the challenges.
0: So Daniel, now that you're here and you're you're getting to know Nashville, you're getting to know this community in this time of these very strong challenges with how Metro Arts goes forward with being a more equitable place to work. What are you hearing from the community on that issue?
5: So I think the uh, community really wanted us to acknowledge um, and be accountable. And I think we're working on doing that both by setting up internal processes to do that. We're looking at how we can have mentorship for staff um, and making sure there's no hierarchy. Staff can come to me directly. They don't have to go through the managers. Staff can go to the diversity officer directly, they don't have to wait to talk to me if they need to get support externally, we're providing them that. We're working to make sure we have external consultants come in um, periodically and train staff and uh, commission committees all to get us on that same vision that Mattia was talking about. So, so, those are some of the processes we're putting in to make sure we hear what the community is saying, that we should be aligning our processes internally as well as externally. and so. I think it, it takes time, you know, like we, we talk about culture change and we can we can start something that's technical quickly, but, but uh, culture change is something like changing someone's diet before a heart attack. It's going to take a, a while for us to do that. And we're committed to that. And I think uh, I can speak to my commitment to that, my experience in that, and the commission's commitment and backing of that. And we're all looking ahead and hoping we can make that transition.
0: What about your staff? What are they saying that they need? to make sure that Metro Arts is a safe and an equitable place to work?
5: I think the staff that are here have kind of been through the grinding of the gears, if you will. And so for them, you know, it wasn't just what was happening at Metro Arts. A lot of things were happening in the world. There was a pandemic, you know, and the Black Lives Matter movement was happening. Me Too was happening. So our understanding of equity itself was changing. What we thought of equity six years, 10 years ago was maybe just outreach. And now we're like looking at representation. Are there in your board, in your staff, in your artists? And so, so our own understandings have changed. And so, I think staff want a safe place for them to be able to talk about what their understanding of equity is, and then look at what the agency's understanding is, and can we get there together? And I'm committed to providing that safe face, safe space for the staff. Uh, and we hope that when we bring in new members, we can provide this, those same opportunities. And we're being proactive about advertising in a lot of different avenues, but also thinking about how we can start setting up mentorship for them right now, you know, directly so that we're not waiting till they're here and there's a problem, but we have an ongoing mentorship approach for incoming staff.
0: Mattia, I'm curious, what has stood out to you as, you know, Metro Arts has held a couple of public listening sessions? What has stood out to you that what you're hearing from the community and their feedback?
6: Yeah, I would I would echo with what what Daniel has already said is people wanted acknowledgement. And, you know, we've acknowledged that harm was was, we, was, was, was caused. We did acknowledge that and they wanted that acknowledgement. So we want to make sure that, you know, we acknowledge that they also wanted to be heard. So we wanted You know, we want to provide more opportunities. I and mean, we just started this listening session. So we have we had a couple. Um, but over the next next few months, we'll have more as we, you know, con- con- continue to prepare for our strategic planning process. But they wanted a, an avenue to be heard. Um, and so we heard that as well. Um, um, and they also wanted an opportunity. they they appreciated the opportunity to interact with Metro staff um, and to be able to share and collaborate with them. Um, we've had multiple opportunities for them to to do that um, over the last few months, and we need to continue to do that. Um, So I heard a lot that like, hey, this is, you know, this is an opportunity that I have to interact with staff. You know, honestly, maybe the most I've interacted with staff in a while. So we need to continue to provide those external opportunities for the community to interact with our staff, to be a part of the process, because equity isn't just about Equity is about sharing resources. It's about sharing power Uh, and really bringing the community into these processes is important. Uh, And and I think that that's that's what they want. And we heard that. Um, And we were trying to make make strides towards that already. So that's really what we heard is acknowledgement, you know, opportunities for feedback and engagement um, uh, continuously, not just once or twice, but continuously.
0: If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm Nina Cardona, sitting in for your host, Khalil Ecolona. We're talking this hour about the future of Metro Arts. Daniel, tell me about your v- your vision for rebuilding Metro Arts.
5: So I think, you know, f- the first thing I'd have to do is build a trust in the community, and we're trying to get that started already. We just went through an extensive uh, grant editing process. It was completely community-driven. We had about 27 community members come and walk through every single question on a grant application, and they made the decision on how to move forward on every question. And so I, that's the kind of commitment I want to bring, and I, and I want to make sure we invo- involve their voices at every step of our path. And the next step would be our strategic planning and cultural planning process, which is going to be a much more um, longer phase. It might take uh, 12 to 18 months. And again, for that, we'll have a steering committee made up of, of local artists and arts organizations that will help us figure out what the new direction is going to be. Um, So those are two ways in which I think we're moving the direction towards building trust and building a relationship with the community. I'm also looking at having a monthly lunch when I can meet with arts organizations and we're having a monthly coffee hour when we can meet with arts organizations. And part of the changes in the grant application was to simplify the reports and and that was done intentionally to make sure staff can go and get to know the artists and not read 26 pages of reports. Like I'd rather have my staff go to a performance or go to a rehearsal or go to an artist studio and see what's happening in real time rather than read about it in reports. And so we're trying to connect our operational processes with our vision as well so that they're not seen as two separate things, but they're actually all working in tandem.
0: You talked about rebuilding trust. What are kind of the benchmarks that you look for to know, okay, that's actually happening. Trust is actually being established that had been broken.
5: I think more the more people participating in our processes will help us understand that. You know, like I said, our, in our grant uh, editing process, we had 27 community members participate. And to me, that's the first step, right? Like they're not quite sure if they trust us yet, but they're willing to dip their toes in the water. Um, but... We hope that it was an affirming experience for them, and they'll come back more. Um, we're also opening up public comments in our um, monthly meeting, so there's a verbal component there, so they can come in and do that in the future. So, and people are signing up, and and this past uh, meeting we had uh, ten slots, and we ended up opening it up to sixteen um, public. Who wanted to comment. And Mattia made that decision because we want to hear from the public. And so I think they're coming and they're talking to us. And those are all signs that they're beginning to see that there's hope. And, and I think that's that's all we can do is, you know, get the structures in place and hope that they'll participate in this.
0: Mattia, Daniel mentioned strategic planning. Can you tell me a little bit more about what that process looks like?
6: Yeah, I mean, it really is going to be, you know, as Daniel mentioned, a long term process where we're bringing the community to really think about where we want to go over the next five to 10 years. There's a lot changing. Um, I think the world is changing. I think the art world is changing. I think our city is changing. Uh, and so we really want to make sure that we are, are hearing all the voices and really bringing people to the table that maybe have not been to the table before. So we want to create this vision with the community and not just with, you know, staff and commission. We want this to be a vision for the city um, and for our community. So you know we're we're going to embark in this process um, in the next few months, uh, and we also hope that we can make make use this process to really come to a line around the, our equity goals and our equity vision. I mean, redefine it. I mean, we have a vision, so I don't want to say we don't have a vision. We definitely have a vision. We're one of the metro, one of the only metro departments that have a vision statement um, that includes equity. But really we need to define that, redefine that vision with our community to make sure we're all on the same page. And this will be, that'll be a part of the process as opposed, to also in addition to that, really envisioning and reimagining what we want um, our arts communities to look like. So, I, you know, it's it it could it should be a very hopeful time. Um, so we can really re- be hopeful and imagine what we want, you know, this arts world to look like, more inclusive, more equitable, uh, and really having access to arts across the city. Um that's what we hope. And that's what we hope to get out of this process with the community, um all a part of it,
0: so you know, we talked about rebuilding trust, and someone's listening right now trying to decide if 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 they're back to that point of trusting metro arts. What would you tell them are the biggest lessons that you learned through all of this?
6: Well, I mean, I first of all, I you know, I think people should take their time. When you when you lose someone's trust, it's, it's not like somebody's going to give it to you automatically. Uh, we want to earn it back, so um, I, I hope that you give us an opportunity to earn that back. I think one of the the things that's clear is you know really being able to have an opportunity for consistent feedback. Um, and as Daniel mentioned, now we have public comments. Um, you know, as a part of our mission and our meetings. we always had that, but it's really defined now. You can, you can comment multiple ways. You can do it online. You can also come to the meetings. We know that's not feasible for everybody to come to a meeting, to leave their job or work or come down. So you can, you can actually um, do that uh, online. So really having an opportunity and some defined ways that people can connect uh, and give us their feedback. So that's one thing. So, you know, if there's something that you want to share with us, then we have a way to get it. Um, I think the other thing that is is really key is just really being visible Um, and, you know, talking to people, um, going out and really making sure we're we're building those relationships because it's not just going to be, um, you know, hey, we want you to trust us again. We're going to have to build, we're going to have to take the time to do it. We're going to have to be, do the one-on-ones and have the meetings and have the sit-downs to really rebuild those relationships. Well,
0: Daniel, on a broader note, you've also just been getting the lay of the land of Nashville's art scene and... From purely arts point of view, what are your priorities?
5: You know, I have this image of uh, Nashville and I say there's like this amazing gear spinning in Nashville, beautiful colors, different speeds, different sizes. And I think what I would love to do is find a way to connect the ones that want to be connected and bring them in. Mm-hmm. So each gear is not spinning on its own or if there's a ribbon we can connect two gears with. Like So that's what I'm looking at. Is like what does the ecosystem need? And, and having been a practicing artists, having run an arts organizations, running different arts agencies, I think that's what I'm really focused on is like, how, what can we bring synergy and lift up the whole Nashville together? Um, and one example is that we don't have a resident arts journalist in Nashville for a city of our size. And with a burgeoning art scene, music city, there's no resident music critic, you know? So, so we're looking at all aspects of that. We're looking at arts education. We found out that 75% of arts education contracts have not been renewed post pandemic. And so like, what does that mean, right? Like K through five is the years, there's a formative for students to understand what their role is to be, in, whether it's in the arts or to be an arts patron. And so we're looking at all of those pieces and hoping that the strategic planning and the community input will help us figure out where we need to go from there.
0: So are you glad you took on this job?
5: I am very excited I took on this job. And Happy I'm, to be in Nashville. Yes, and I'm excited to be here and excited to get to know the community more as well.
0: Well, Daniel Singh is the new executive director of Metro Arts, and Mattia Powell is the chair of the Metro Arts Commission. Thank you both Thank for you. being here. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Magnolia McKay. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. Conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at Nashville. Find us on Instagram and tell us what you want from from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Nina Cardona. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody.